the United States has never had a STEM equity goal. We've never had a national STEM equity plan. And as we build out that plan, this will give us the opportunity to truly reach an equitable STEM enterprise by 2050. What must we do today and tomorrow and next year and the year after to actually achieve that? Mm-hmm. And so SOA has this 2050 timeline, but to quote Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., it's about the fierce urgency of now. Hello, world, and welcome to Her Royal Science. Thank you so much for joining us for today's episode. Today, we'll be chatting with Dr. Travis York, the Director of Inclusive STEM Ecosystems for Equity and Diversity, ICED for short, at the American Association for the Advancement of Science. Dr. York previously completed his bachelor's and master's degrees at Geneva College and received his PhD in higher education administration from the Pennsylvania State University. I'm thrilled to be chatting with Dr. York today about his exceptional work in transforming the STEM landscape to be more equitable, diverse, and inclusive. But let's start from the very beginning. Dr. York, what's your story? So my story kind of really begins in growing up in in the the rural Southeast. Um, My father is actually three quarters Native American, um, although we didn't really grow up culturally as Native. Uh, We were really kind of we were raised off reservation, didn't really have a lot of cultural um, kind of engagement opportunities. Uh, But my dad's family really impressed upon myself and my cousins and siblings um, that this was an important part of our family. So I do think that especially later in life, we started to learn more about how that came into uh, our sphere of, of experience. And so in my family, education was emphasized. And I think really emphasized from this space of my parents saying, look at how we have really struggled in not having a college education. And we don't want this for you. This is why you need to do really well in school. Um, it was really clear from an early age for me that um, my family wouldn't be able to financially support me going to school. Mm-hmm. So there was this expectation of both I needed to go to college and also that I needed to figure out a way to pay for that college, which is not an easy thing to do in modern American higher education. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing that was really helpful to me is that all of the the friends that I was around I, I, while, while my family was pretty low, low or mi- low middle income, I, I was around a lot of friends that were more middle to high income and going to college was just part of their expected and normal thing. Um, so it was really through the kind of network of people around us that I kind of found myself going into higher ed and I ended up choosing a really small, uh, private liberal arts institution. Yeah. My high school, my public high school was 3,000 some students. Uh, it was uh, incredibly diverse. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I went uh, 12 hours away um, and went to a, a college of 1,000 students um, uh, where, where like I didn't even know what a TA was. Like every course was taught by a faculty member. It was very integrated. It was very academically rigorous. And that was a really exciting uh, difference. And it was my first time, I think, really getting out of the region that I had grown up in and um, experiencing the world in a different place, in a different way. Uh, so in, while I was working with my advisor, I, I had two two majors in my undergrad. One was biblical studies and pre-seminary, mm. and the other was actually an independent major in the humanities. I focused on the Renaissance. Oh. Uh, and there weren't many courses at my college to take on the Renaissance. So I had 
you know, through the power of Google, learned that there was a center for medieval and Renaissance studies at Oxford University. Thankfully, that really, that worked out. I got accepted. I was able to enroll in this part of the college. I was at Keeble College. And um, I spent almost a year in England. I had uh, did, did a co-op and then uh, spent a term um, at Oxford as a student there. Mm-hmm. That experience of a very different higher education system yeah. and a way of teaching and a way there uh, there are no grades you just get like kind of at the end of the term did you pass or did you fail like mm-hmm. there's no grades on your papers or anything like that just really sparked in me a whole lot of questions mm-hmm. about higher education and and so that's what led me into higher ed so then I got my master's in higher ed I was at first working in student affairs um, and then. It was, it was really in my master's uh, that I had some incredible faculty that I think saw something in me that I did not yet see in myself. I mean, because even the idea of like going on to graduate school, my family was like, what are you doing? Why are you failing at school? Why are you still there? <laughs> um, and so that's when I then decided to uh, head to Penn State to do my PhD in higher ed. Um, but in that process, fell in love with the idea that I could help learn more about how to increase educational equity and mm-hmm. um, student success. I was really focused on, in particular, student success and experiences in my PhD. So that's kind of where my story begins. From what I've learned about you thus far, it sounds like a lot of what you do now is about creating safe spaces within academia and within higher education. Could we talk a little bit more about the work that you're doing now? I, I just I, I want to learn more. I can't wait. Yeah, I'm happy to talk about that. Yeah, so absolutely right. I mean, I think, you know, the the adage of research is me search is very true in my life. Mm-hmm. I think this the genesis for this really was that while I was going through my PhD of my cousins and aunts and aunts and uncles and parents and whatnot, the only other person that's gone to college is actually my sister. I was helping my sister navigate her process. She started at a community college, then transferred to a four-year institution, ended up even at one point in time taking some time off because she had her first um, her first child, my nephew, whom I adore, uh, before coming back and completing. Mm-hmm. Um, and as I was helping her navigate all of that, I saw something really, really weird. And it was that my sister's experience in higher education was nothing like my experience in higher education. Okay. And it was confusing to me and it was weird. And at first I was trying to think like, well, maybe it's just because I'm so much smarter than her, <laughs> which is totally not true. It's totally not true. Yeah. Um, and I was just trying to understand it. And then what did I, what I started really, I think the convergence of my PhD journey and the personal life that I was experiencing was I started to notice that it was, I think it was actually my sister's experience was largely because of the fact that she's a woman and the fact that she has more melanin in her skin. So I mentioned before that we're almost half Native American, yeah. half Indigenous. Yeah. My sister looks much more like the rest of my family. I am very white looking. Mm. I pass as white. I have a lot of privilege associated with being a white man. Um, and even though I'm gay, I, I present fairly masculinely. Mm. And so I think I am the, the receiver of a lot of unearned privilege because of all of those factors. Yeah. My sister was not the receiver of those. And that became really clear to me. And that's what led me into really looking at how organizational structures of institutions of higher education don't really support all students. Um, they weren't created to from the beginning. And while institutions have been changing, you know, I think it's a, I think it's a fallacy to think about colleges and universities as unchanged since they were created in, you know, decades and decades or, you know, 
centuries and centuries ago. They have changed. They've changed a lot, Mm -hmm. but they still have evolving to do to better serve all students. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of the work that I've been engaged in really over my career has been about helping institutions of higher education, even now K-12 and industry and research infrastructure, really understanding how institutions and organizations can catalyze and sustain transformation so that they really support equity. Um, and, you know, it's not about treating people special or anything like that. It's really about opening up these organizations so that they work for all people, because that is what we know we need for tackling the world's most pressing problems. We know that in science in particular, excellence in science is inextricably linked to equity in science. Mm-hmm. That's what a lot of our work, or all of our work actually, is is now focused on. We actually have over 20 funded initiatives within ICED. Uh, those range from uh, the entire continuum of STEM education and talent development and workforce development. Mm. Um, so we have projects that work um, with undergraduate uh, scientists and scholars with disabilities. We, we work with um, uh, scientists with disabilities and helping place them in internships in our entry point program. Mm. Um, all the way through, we have a, a program um, called the Emerging Researchers National Conference, which mm-hmm. is one of the largest gatherings of primarily um, historically underserved stu- undergraduate and graduate students in STEM, mm-hmm. where they come and present their research and they compete in presenting their research and um, have this incredible experience mm-hmm. where they get a ton of professional development and connections to uh, other schools and research centers and industry. And um, for many of them, it may be the first time that they're in a enormous ballroom where they don't feel like they're the only, right. but in fact, they feel like they're in a vast connected network mm-hmm. of scholars of color. Um, and it's incredible to see the future of science in that room. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we have programs that really work at building the capacity of institutional leaders to evolve their their structures. So SOA, the STEM Opportunity Alliance, is really a national effort that we've just launched. Uh, we were really privileged to have support uh, from the Doris Duke Foundation um, that really kind of was our angel funder early in this work before it was public. Uh, and we've now been joined by 13 additional funders. Um, and this national effort is about galvanizing stakeholders to achieve STEM equity and excellence by 2050. Um, The Alliance is built on the understanding that diversity in STEM is essential to the scientific enterprise. It's critical for U.S. economic growth and competitiveness and necessary for building a just society to better individuals' lives. So we launched that initiative just this past December. On December 12th, we launched it at the first ever White House Summit on STEM Equity and Excellence. It was super exciting. Um, there is a recording of it if anybody wants to check it out. The energy in the room was incredible. It was so exciting. And what we're really doing, we have a slate of meetings that are now kind of going almost every month across the country um, mm-hmm. where uh, we're actually taking this framework that we've drafted around a plan for equity and we're engaging in small group breakouts in these events with community members, with industry leaders, with education leaders and researchers, and really crafting a truly national strategic plan. Mm. The United States has never had a STEM equity goal. We've never had a national STEM equity plan. And 
as we build out that plan, this will give us the opportunity to truly reach an equitable STEM enterprise by 2050. Yeah. What must we do today, mm-hmm. tomorrow, and next year and the year after to actually achieve that? Mm-hmm. And so SOA has this 2050 timeline, but to quote Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., it's about the fierce urgency of now. All right. Well, before I, I jump into my next question, I just have to commend you and your colleagues for this amazing work that you're doing. It is vastly interdisciplinary, which I think is incredibly important. You're reaching out to all the important stakeholders. And I think that's something that has often gone overlooked in the past, where you just talk to one very small group, niche group of people who have a particular set of skills. And I mean, when you're talking about STEM affecting everybody, that means you have to involve everybody. Everybody. Yeah. What a novel idea. I know, right? (laughs) Yeah. Yes. And and I'll say, you know, for anybody that wants to learn more about SOA, Mm. um, we have a website. It's www.stemopportunity.org. People can sign up for kind of our regular, we do, we try to do like monthly newsletters to let people know like where are upcoming events, Mm. um, what are we doing. But um, to, to your point, even this national plan that we're constructing, we will have an open like request for information mm-hmm. where people will be able to f- literally from all over the country be able mm-hmm. to give feedback. So even if you can't make it to one of these meetings or, you know, if your schedule doesn't allow, we really, we really are trying to craft a truly nationwide plan. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the only way actually, right, for us to do this. It's the mm-hmm. only way for us to truly build a national movement. Has there been any resistance? up until present day about these programs because they they are so all-inclusive and it yeah. does require a lot of internal change and structural change? There, There's always resistance, mm-hmm. um, but that's not abnormal in any sort of change. Uh, what's been really encouraging to me is that I, I'm not exactly sure why this is, but for whatever reason in in America, science has been and continues to be one of the unifying spaces within our country. And I think right now, in a time where politically our country is more divided than I think we've ever ever been before, perhaps, especially in this past decade, it gives me great joy and hope to see that science and technology, the science and technology infrastructure, medicine, mathematics, uh, engineering, social sciences are a truly bipartisan topic. Mm. It is. It has bipartisan support. You know, the House Science Committee, in my opinion, is the highest performing House committee there there is. That committee has has. It's a bipartisan committee that does incredible, tremendous work. It, it has so across multiple administrations, um, and I think that 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 is kind of emblematic to me. You know, it was under such great leadership formerly by Eddie Bernice Johnson and um and just you know across stem you know this is you know, support for the National Science Foundation and NIH and DOD and D- Department of Energy those are bi- there's bipartisan support and 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 um energy around stem and the stem workforce and so i do hope that this area can become a solve mm-hmm. for America. I I hope that by our kind of shared vision for a better tomorrow through investments in our citizenry, that we continue to have a space where literally America can become more whole and more united and, um, 
and really focus on how much we are alike and have similar shared goals as a country. Mm -hmm. And really, I hope spread that joy and potential to other countries across the the world. You know, we do a lot of science diplomacy work here at AAAS. Uh, Mm -hmm. I have a wonderful colleague, Kim Montgomery, who um, leads an office for that. And we see incredible, you know, history and promise for how science can be um, an incredible diplomatic tool. Uh, and so I, 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 not to make, not to say that science is a panacea. Um, <laughs> there's lots of ways that we, um, continue to evolve science and make science better. Mm-hmm. But I do think that there is something really amazing about, um, science and it's exciting to be a part of that. Mm-hmm. It's really exciting to be a witness to it. And I can't wait to see what happens next. I'm hoping that we could jump back in time to give advice to a young you. I I wonder if you have thought about what you would tell a young version of yourself about the future and about the work that you're doing or or advice navigating this world of higher education. Do you have a few words of advice for for young Travis? Oh, I probably more than a few. Oh yeah. Um, <laughs> I think um I think the words of advice that I would have would really be around telling my younger self that I don't have to hide as much Mm. um, and that being who you are is your superpower. And I think this applies for every single person. We don't need people trying to be someone else. We need people being themselves. That is the, the way that we really have the greatest strengths of people in our, in our world. And I know for myself growing up as a, as a queer two spirited um, kind of biracial person that just didn't look biracial. um, There was a lot of kind of erasure that was happening around me. And I think I took that on in myself. I mean, some of it I was doing purposely. I was hiding the -hmm. fact that I was gay. I grew up in a really um, religious conservative, religious background. Mm -hmm. And so there was fear of, of being myself. And I think the greatest lesson I have learned through the love and acceptance of those around me is that, um, that is so much weight and that is so limiting to people. And when we let go of that, when shame is no longer the dream killer, we can be who we are meant to be. And that is when we can actually make the biggest impact in the world. Mm-hmm. And so I tell, I tell people that I mentor and students that I still get to interact with to fall in love with who they are. Mm-hmm. Don't, be in love with yourself in a narcissistic way, but to be in love with being yourself and to just know that your strengths have inherent blind spots, but that you want to really focus on your strengths being um, the stars that they are. Um, And so to really love and cherish that and other people will too. That is beautiful. I do have an extra question if you don't mind me asking. Yeah, I'm happy to. You said you grew up in a conservative area and you, you might have been hiding your identity as well. Did you find yourself having to hide your identity when you were at university as well? Because I know university is oftentimes the space where you can go and be yourself and discover who you are. And yeah. so you were hiding there too? I was. So I didn't come out until I was 25, um, the first year in my PhD program, actually. Okay. Um, I think early on in my when I first started my college career, I was not out to myself yet. Um, I don't, I think I was still kind of in a space of like, don't explore at at some point in time, the right, 
the right girl will come along and everything will just work itself out. That was the narrative that I had grown up in and being gay or queer and being um, a person of faith were not compatible. They were not, there were no narratives of that. It's incredible how much that those worldview narratives shape the way that we even think about the world. And I even, um, you know, it, it was, it was probably the largest challenge of my undergraduate and graduate uh, mass, master's career was really struggling. And um, in particular, I have always wanted a family. I've always wanted to be a husband mm-hmm. uh, to potentially have kids. And so when it became clear to me that I what I identified at the time as my same-sex attraction was not going away. What actually threw me into some real turmoil and crisis was that I started to grieve the loss of the idea that I would ever have a family. Oh, wow. And uh, I'll try not to get emotional. It was the hardest thing I think I've ever had to go through in my life, and I was going through that completely on my own mm-hmm. um, until I, I did seek out working with a counselor through my college, mm-hmm. um, and that did not go well. Um, they were clearly not, I, I don't think that they were equipped to deal with uh, sexual identity. Um, and they were treating uh, my struggle as if I was an alcoholic uh, and that it was more of like, it was more dependency related and not, it was a very poor ex- experience that I had in this one case. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so um, when conversion therapy was suggested to me, I thankfully, I don't know how or why, but something in my head triggered and I said, I know that that's not appropriate and that's not okay. And so I ended that. And then I started to confide in some family members. My mom was the first person I told. Um, thankfully, I think I was really at the end of my rope um, in not being able to talk to people that I knew cared about me. Um, so my mom was the first person I came out to. And um, as the true rock star she is, she said every right thing. She assured me that she loved me no matter what. She told me that she thought God had actually made me this way and she was waiting for this day and couldn't be more proud of me. And that led to a series of me. I have a very non-eventful coming out story where I then started to tell as people as quickly as I could. I literally made a list and started scratching people off the list because I'm very oh. type A. Um, <laughs> and And I was surrounded by people who actually were incredibly supportive and loving to me. And it was the exact opposite of the narrative I had built in my head. The interesting thing to me about it is once I came out, I did not realize prior how much emotional and mental energy that was going into hiding. It is insane how much time and energy and emotional weight I was giving to any time somebody asked if they could speak to me, the first thing that would come into my mind is like, has somebody found out? And, you know, like (laughs) it was just, it's just, it's, it it was, it was really, I had no idea how much pressure and stress I was under Mm -hmm. until it was no longer there because it had been there for so long. And so the incredible thing is that once I came out and I could redirect that emotional energy and that time into things that actually I loved mm-hmm. uh, and into my work, I became so much more productive. I became so much more happy. I became so much more healthy. So um, I'm glad you did ask this question and it has relayed into my work still. Mm-hmm. So we have a sexual orientation and gender identity project that we just had funded this last October. We're mm-hmm. launching this June, mm-hmm. a national mixed methods study um, 
in building out sexual orientation and gender identity data in post-secondary institutions across the U.S. Mm -hmm. Right now, this data is not captured very, uh, it's not really captured and used Mm -hmm. uh, by most institutions because it's a really complex issue and it's very difficult for them to understand how to do it. So working with um, several researchers, uh, John Freeman at Columbia, uh, Jay Garvey at University of Vermont, and his Mm -hmm. team at QDPI, which is an incredible research center, um, and Mario Suarez at uh, Utah State, we're doing this really incredible project to address this issue in American higher education. So even that experience still translates into the work that we do at AAAS. I'm also very glad that I got the opportunity to ask the question. I appreciate your time and thank you for doing the work that you do. Well, thank you so much for having me on. This has been an incredible conversation and thank you for all the work you do in highlighting um, so many incredible, incredible people and the work across so many incredible endeavors um, through your podcast. I love it. So please keep making it, please, please, because I love it.